Hello and welcome to the Inside Social Work podcast where we take a peek behind the scenes into different fields of social work, engage and inspire practitioners, translate research into practice and encourage lifelong learning. I'm your host, Marie Vakakis. Thank you for listening and I hope you enjoyed today's podcast episode. In today's episode, I chat with Associate Professor Ronnie Egan, where we explore the need for quality student placements, and we look at her history and her work experience in social work and how she ended up where she is as an Associate Professor and working in the Student Field Education Program at RMIT University. We talk about some of the things that stops people from taking on a student and looking at some of the unexpected learnings and rewards for those who decide to take them on. We discuss some of the support and training options available to those who want to improve their supervision skills and some of the opportunities that they have in engaging with students on placement. Dr. Ronnie Egan is an Associate Professor of Field Education in Social Work at RMIT University. She has specialised in research about supervision and practice for social workers and students. She's been published widely in these areas and has extensive and active networks in the human services sector. Her relationship with the field spans her career as a practitioner, academic, and this has enabled her to develop some innovative ways of understanding and facilitating the nexus between universities and the community. She also chairs the National Field Education Network. Okay, so bear with me. This uh, episode was recorded on Skype with a few areas of bad connection. Uh, but yeah, hope you enjoyed today's podcast episode. Did you want to start by sharing with the audience some of your social work journey and what led you yeah. to this point? Yeah, sure. Well, I've been a social worker for a very long time, Marie. Uh, In fact, graduating in 1980. So clearly, it's a long career. So look, I began initially in youth housing and residential youth work, and then moved into that sort of general housing space. Uh, as the first regional youth housing worker down in the southeastern suburbs in Dandenong, Dubton, Cranbourne wasn't much of a suburb then compared to now. Um, I then worked in community health um, for a long time where a lot of my work was in relation to women and family violence um, I then managed the Western Region Centre Against Sexual Assaults um, for a number of years and worked with the Western Region um, Community Development Commission and then moved in part-time working at Victoria University uh, in field education as well as teaching skills. Alongside that, I also worked for other organisations. I worked for LifeWorks. So I actually worked there with doing a lot of the assessments for male perpetrators in the men's behaviour change groups, which is something I never thought I'd do. But the other lot of work that I did, particularly when I was at VU, was doing a lot of staff development. So a lot of work in the external supervision space, you know, initially with practitioners and groups of practitioners attached to a whole range 
of different organisations, from statutory organisations, you know, all the way through to very small community groups. And I guess I was really interested in that supervision space. You know, I was working at VU part-time while I was doing this work and also felt the need to be doing if I was going to teach in that space. So I had a big commitment to doing the, both things part-time. I then went as a full-time academic and enrolled in a PhD and surprise, surprise, my PhD was about social work supervision. And I was really driven by my work as a practitioner, um, you know, both as a receiver of supervision. It's something, you know, I still have supervision um, with a colleague. Um, it, it's something that I'm pretty committed to in the social work space. I still do a little bit of supervision, but now it's sort of at a very senior level with people. And I don't get as much time to go out and do a lot of that professional development in the space around conflict resolution, team building, those sorts of things. Uh, I still really enjoy those things. I just don't have as much space to do it. My PhD was around social work supervision and when I completed that, I moved to RMIT, which is my current job, a job which blends everything really that I've done in my career and sort of the – I'm now Associate Professor of Field Education at RMIT and uh, that's in relation to social work and I've just taken on the coordination of youth work and social science psychology placements too. That's a um, great combination because I still get to have very, very close relationships with industry and my interest in making universities much more accessible to, you know, human service organisations is one of my major drivers in the position I'm in. It's, it's actually such a good fit for you, like you said, and it really shows in how you have structured the whole program, essentially to, gr to grow new social workers. So you're looking at it from organisations, how they can have students on placement and benefit from that, but then also the support to the supervisors, both internally and externally facing. Absolutely. And I mean, universities aren't very good at reaching out. They don't have a good reputation. They have a good reputation at taking, um, particularly in that research space. So they're very keen to have participants for research. But the relationships and the approach that we've been using at RMIT is very much about trying to build on the very long-term relationships that RMIT have had in the placement space and trying to provide something which where we can give back to the field all of the all of the sort of resources that they've given us in relation to placements in the past and so you know those key relationships that RMIT has had in the past where now we have about 18 organizations who are on board with us providing a minimum of 10 placements. So what would be I mean I'm hoping that a lot of graduates and sort of 
or soon-to-be social workers would be listening. But what are some of the tools and resources that they can tap into? So they're still starting off their journey um, for a lot of fields that are non-allied health. The, the idea of supervision is quite different and challenging to kind of get your head around. Often it's seen, I know when I worked in schools, it was like, what do you mean you're having supervision? What have you done wrong? It was seen as a yeah, right. man, you know, performance management yeah. thing rather than yeah. understanding how yeah. beneficial it can be for career development, for understanding complex cases and the importance of fostering that relationship with your supervisor and the whole model itself. I just think we operate in managerial space and the reality is that's not going away anytime soon. And to for social workers to believe that they can't do that they can do this work without the genuine space that supervision provides for reflection you know at multiple levels you know administrative is important but at a support level but also an educational and a mediation level for me is just the recipe for burnout because the reality is that the current context means that the sort of accountability is driven by numbers. When we're just looking at supervision as line management, the danger is that that space becomes just fraught because there is no way for that practitioner, for that, you know, for that new social worker to get a sense of it. You know, like we always talk to our students about when they're on placement, uh, they never make a decision without, you know, someone else. I mean, I also say that when they're just first out after graduation, they also should not make a decision without consulting with someone else. But I can't guarantee in that space that type of supervision offered. And I guess, you know, when we're talking just a bit before this interview, that's when practitioners are seeking external supervision to ensure that they remain able to do the work in a genuinely reflective productive but most importantly satisfying way the work can be amazing it's really really important work that we do but we also have to be supported in it and I mean you know the other thing is there are so many creative possibilities in our work but we need support to do that. So we can acknowledge that supervision is quite important to reduce burnout to get that kind of extra support around managing cases, managing workload. What are the some of the tools that you think a student might be able to come to a supervisor with? So sometimes supervisors don't always have official or formal supervision training. They've learned what they they've they've learned by observing, so they often do what was done for them. And, yeah. and the, the power dynamic can be quite difficult. So they often expect a, a student or an early graduate to say, this is what I want and this is what I need. But sometimes that can be really hard to do and people don't know where to start or how they can even use supervision effectively. So do you have some tools or ideas for for people to have that conversation? Oh, absolutely. Um, One of the things that we certainly say to our students and we also say uh, in our training, so 
I just want to put in a plug that RMIT, when, when you take an RMIT student, we have a monthly professional development series, uh, you know, for beginners and advanced field educators. But, of course, the content and the resources that we provide people, we also have a theory and practice stream in that. But the resources are, of course, there's a lot on supervision. So one of the things we do say to our students is when you go for a job interview, that's one of the sort of um, important questions to ask. What is the sort of policy that the organisation has in place around supervision and professional development? Because that's an important question to understand. What is the nature of the support that you're going to be getting? And in our training, so I go back to that, we often get field educators to reflect on their own experience of supervision in order to understand what makes a positive supervisory relationship. So going back and recognising what a good supervisory relationship is and what's one that's a challenging one. And, in fact, everyone in those sessions are able to identify exactly what a positive supervisory relationship is and so much of it. So when you talk about what are the sort of tools that people need to, you know, I mean, the first one is is being assertive enough in a job interview to ask about that, sort of what's their policy, you know, how does it look? But then, you know, the next step, of course, in relation to that is working out then how you embed that structurally in any sort of new job context. So what's the contract in terms of supervision? You know, how often will it be? What will be the nature of it? You know, what will be the content? What will be the review process? Where does it fit into your overall sort of job space and your work plan? You know, and so yep. creating that, setting up that that expectation from day one, really, and recognising when that's not possible, then what am I going to do about that? That might be where, um, you know, graduate early career social workers have to make the decision about, okay, uh, I am not getting what I need in this context. What am I going to do about it and how am I going to survive in practice? And that's where people seek external supervision um, you know, and that external supervision might be something that, you know, it, it doesn't always have to look like an individual supervision session. You know, people might want to look at getting together in a group. Certainly, you know, when I think about my career, I've had supervision in a whole different, you know, continuum of ways from that, you know, very clear internal supervision, which focuses on, you know, support, education, administration, mediation. But I've also had it in a group of peers or in a paid group or in a paid individual external group. So there are multiple ways of doing it. But at the end of the day, you need somewhere where you are able to discuss the work in some intimacy. Yeah, and, and that's some, something that's something yeah. I often suggest to people is, 
you know, if your organization only offers line management supervision, that's great and you can maximize that. But if you can find someone external that you can see, it doesn't have to be as frequently if you're still getting supervision, but to have that continuity, especially if you're changing jobs frequently or you want to look at someone's perspective that's external to your sector, I think it's really valuable. It's something I wish I had done a little bit better and was more assertive on is finding someone external and sticking with them for a few years so they can see that growth and that development. But it's also a a more intimate relationship where you can actually say and feel comfortable to to say your struggles. But when when you're an early career social worker or even with line management, it can be difficult to say, I'm actually struggling with this case because you feel like your performance might be viewed as inadequate in some way. Yeah, look, ab- absolutely. And I mean, that that's why we say to students very clearly that um, it's important in that initial interview to have the discussion about, oh, what's your, you know, the curious question in the interview, ah, what's your policy around supervision? Um, you know, what is the sort of, you know, professional development that is offered? Because that that is an, an okay question to ask in an interview. So yeah. you're putting it on the table first and foremost, you know, around what it is that you're um, uh, that, that is important to you. And, it, you know, if, if it's clear that it's it's not going to happen, then you, you need to be able to work out how am I going to do this? In, and in that early, um, early part of your career, um, it's easy to get carried away, if you like, with yeah, the excitement absolutely. of working and, and not be clear around, you know, where am I going with this? I like to use a ref- like a reflective practice model with some people where they can kind of go through a case study and it has oh, particular structure of how they go about that. Absolutely. Like, of course, I use as a guide Davies and Beddo, which is best practice in professional supervision. Is that a, a book? Guide. Yeah, it's a book. And they have a lovely model that we use, uh, well, I use at RMIT with students, but I would also use in the past with practitioners as well. well. So I'll put that in the show notes as one of the resources for people. That would be great. One of the questions that's been posed to me recently is around students, in particular doing the MSW who have come from other industries, how they can still – acknowledge that they're a graduate in social work but also come with a wealth of knowledge in another background. So it could be youth work, it could be nursing, it could be a managerial or leadership position in another role and how they can kind of manage that sort of paradox between being a new graduate in one way but also really experienced as a working professional in another sector. It can be good and bad, (laughs) I think, in relation to the, you know, the importance um, of bringing that sort of life experience and that wisdom and that different perspective that can work well as long as there's some acknowledgement that they're pretty new in social work. What is important is to understand what it is that the strengths that those students bring, but also what might be some of those challenges. Often they're, you know, our most um, 
anxious students because even though they've had a long history in, you know, a long working life, the reality is that they're new. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I think that's quite hard to manage to find that balance of you still have a lot of skill and you might even be in an, you know, older than the person that's your supervisor or your team member, but then there's still a consolidation period of the theories and practices specific to social work and how to bridge that gap a little bit. Absolutely. And and, and to feel okay about um, being able to do that. I, I think it's important in that initial point in the placement to have a discussion around what they bring and the impact of that. Awesome. So we've got a lot of um, resources for supervision um, for people becoming a supervisor. So there's that CSU course that's online that's a guide to supervision in social work field education. And they're just about to redo that, which is fabulous. Oh, does that mean I have to do it again? (laughs) Uh, Yeah, well, no, no, no. It'll take them a little while, but it's really good that they are sort of updating some of it. Ah, beautiful. Yeah. Yeah. Are there there any other things that students can do? So there might be some students out there who are um, are quite eager to consolidate their practice. Mm -hmm. And especially I find it's quite difficult for those whose field or task supervisor is not an accredited social worker. So they find that difficult to kind of how do they then use an external supervisor, for example, when they're on placement or tap if they're in industry like – in education where they might be the only person in a wellbeing coordinator role or as a counsellor, how do they use effectively use external supervision? Ah, so, uh, you know, I mean, obviously it depends on the university how they manage that. At RMIT, what we do with off-site supervision is we have seven two-hour group supervisions and then we have seven hours of individual supervision per student. So then there is the three liaison visits where the opportunity, the key issue around that off-site, you know, task supervisor relationship is that the communication from the get-go is is clear and everyone is clear about that. So those three liaison visits, that first one and the contact between the off-site supervisor, the task supervisor and the student, everyone is clear about their roles. So I think, you know, students do get concerned if, you know, oh, what happens if I just have a task supervisor, you know, is that going to uh, impact? And in fact, uh, no, it doesn't have to. In fact, what's some research that we've undertaken off, on off-site supervision? We think it's an issue of perception that it's seen as second best when, in fact, the feedback from students is that it's often the opportunity where uh, they can genuinely unpack some of the observations about organisational life that they wouldn't necessarily feel comfortable disclosing to an on-site supervisor. Similarly, often our students say that the off-site supervisor is more familiar with the theory practice divide than their on-site supervisor was. 
And how can someone who's no, no longer got the support of a university, who's out in the field, who's graduated, who's working, how can they handle some of those complicated situations? What advice would you give to them considering your wealth of knowledge in that area? It's really important that if you're considering external supervisor uh, supervision, so I guess there's two situations. One situation is where maybe you're a manager and you're thinking about your, you know, some of your staff getting external supervision, but then there's also the new graduates thinking about that um, consideration. And I guess that's where... Interviews, you know, your interviews are really important, those recruitment interviews where you have the conversation from the get-go about what is the nature of the supervision provided at this organisation mm. and getting a sense of what sort of resources are being allocated uh, around that. So I guess the, the issue is that... Um, Mainly it comes down to what's the rationale for wanting the external supervision. So if it is because you feel like I just don't have access to this, it's not being acknowledged in my organisation, I'm really struggling and I wouldn't discuss the whole idea of external supervision with anyone in my organisation, that's a different situation to someone who's saying, look, you know, I want some more, I'm a new graduate, and I want someone to really spend, you know, devoted time just to talking about my, the nature of my work with clients. So, you know, I guess there's a continuum of people from those people who are just going, get me out of my organisation, I just need this, to the other end where they're having a conversation with their manager saying, look, I'd really like you to contribute for some external supervision. Um, and, and then it's up to the organisation what they say, really. Um, they're two different sort of conversations but the, you need to be clear about what it is that you're wanting because any good external supervisor will be saying, what is it that you want from that? Because they also should be contracting with you. As what well. does that process of contracting mean? I think that's quite foreign to a lot of people. Um, so I guess you're buying a service. So if you're going to pay for external supervision, then you're going to have a look around. So you're going to ask colleagues and talk about who is uh, working in this space. You're going to be saying, what are these people expert at? What is it that I need? And you're going to be calling them or making a time with them and working out whether you will pay for that time or not. But it's a service like any other. And particularly if you're paying for it, um, the organisation is paying for it. It's, um, you know, it's a bit different because the lines of accountability will be different if your organisation is paying for external as opposed to if you're paying for external. But if you're just paying for external, obviously it's a tax deduction, but you would want to be pretty clear 
um, what it is that you need because you don't want to waste that money. You know, I mean, supervision is 100 bucks an hour or something like that. I don't know what the current rates are actually, what people are charging, but it's service. So you want to make sure that what you want is going to be supplied by those um, people. Wonderful. And is there a minimum requirement for someone to call themselves a supervisor? Do they have to do an official supervisory course or can someone just say, I've had X number of years of professional experience in this field and therefore I can translate that skill into supervising other people? Well, that's a very good question because (laughs) the um, ASW was – you know, looking at what it meant to be an accredited social work supervisor. Now, that hasn't gone much further, but there are the ASW, Social Work Supervision Standards. Um, But no, there isn't a requirement. So anyone could, you know, technically um, put out a shingle and say, I'm an external supervisor. But again, I come back to you need to go and do that research and be pretty clear that the person that you're going to see um, is going to satisfy your needs. And if they're not, great, um, you go and find someone else. Absolutely. And I'll link to those standards in the show notes as well as some of the other resources we've talked about. Fantastic. so just to, to wrap up so you can get back to teaching, yeah, yeah, yeah. We, we've right. talked about some of the things that students can do and I have a feeling this will be interview part one of maybe several over the year. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, what, are some of, what, are, what are some of the enticing things about taking on a student? So we looked at some of the support that you offer in particular around the model of the professional practice days. Yes, yes. But what is, I mean, I hear a lot of people being really unsure or thinking it's a huge time commitment or some actually being really dismissive and saying, oh, great, it's another kind of hands on deck and we, we can kind of just use that student. What's yes. that? Yeah. What what kind of supervisors or organisations are you looking for that can offer a really good learning opportunity yeah. as yes. well as really get back from that student, whether it's a connection back to the practice or consolidate their own learning? What are some of those I guess, carrots that we can dangle in front of people to take on students? Oh, look, you know, in places like Child Protection and some other organisation, it's a condition of promotion that before you would go on to a leadership position that you will have demonstrated um, that you can supervise a student So first and foremost, uh, it would be, and in hospitals, clinical settings, supervising a student is your sort of first step, if you like, to a leadership position, a team leader position. And so from that that sort of point of view, that's pretty straightforward. That's what's, uh, you know, that's the value of it. Um, But more than that, it's, it's, you know, what, Um, We've done some research with asking why uh, field educators want to take on students. And, you know, one of the the first things they said was because they want to give back someone supervised for them. So they want to give them a good experience. You know, the other side of that is they had a terrible experience and they want to give a better experience. But the other really important thing they said, which was almost... Uh, at the same, you know, 
level was that they wanted to have a student to keep them updated on the latest theories. I think that's great. I mean, I know that that happens in other industries like education where students will come on their teaching rounds and then be able to bring back into the school what they're learning as best practice. And I think that's a really good sort of recursive cycle of that's oh absolutely bringing that in because it's really hard to stay on top of some of that if you're not in those areas all the time oh well you can't and I mean I know that that was my you know I, I mean I've taken dozens of students over the years and the main reason was because I would just say to them just photocopy your readings for me can you because you know that, okay, well, you assume, we assume, we hope that um, university courses um, have uh, the most current thinking around issues. So, you know, the reality is that, you know, most practitioners don't have a lot of time to go exploring what is the most current you know, thinking around different issues. So having a student is like a conduit to the university. You know, one of the things we'd really like to do in the past, it was very easy to give external um, organisations, uh, sorry, field educators, uh, field educators access to library resources you know that's just not the case now we're really trying to be able to offer that because that's a great uh, gift to be able to say to practitioners you can access all of the university databases and resources that's fantastic and I even think it's useful as a task supervisor I've been a task supervisor for psychology students so even having that interdisciplinary discussion and looking at current theories and best practice in different fields that work very closely with social work has yeah. been really valuable in the past yeah okay yeah that's right absolutely any parting words of wisdom or books or resources you want to share with our audience? Uh, probably the – did I send you the links to my supervision articles? No. Because I think they're really useful. Yep, great. Send those through and I can yeah, put them I'll, up. I'll, yeah, that would be terrific. Excellent. All right. Thanks, thanks so thanks much, Ronnie. Ronnie. Talk soon. Bye. See ya. Bye. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. Be sure to check out the show notes for today's episode's resources. Don't forget to click subscribe and review us wherever it is you get your podcasts.